Stockholm, the Venice of the North, the haunt of René Descartes and Ingmar Bergman, birthplace of Strindberg and Garbo and Nobel. But forget about them, it's also the home of the ABBA Museum. Yes, in this podcast we're going to be talking about ABBA. Waterloo, Eurovision, White Bell Bottoms, I was sick and tired of everything when I called you last night from Glasgow. And who chose this subject, you're asking? Uh, Well, that would be me. My name's Matthew Sweet, and this is the podcast from Intelligent Life, sister magazine of The Economist, where you can hear our contributors in conversation. Now, I suppose it would have been possible for me to interview myself, but Ken Kukier, data editor of The Economist, has saved me from that humiliation, but he may well have arrived in the studio ready with some of his own. Ken, welcome. Thank you. I could say I don't want to talk about the things we've gone through, but I do. I I do, I do, I do, I do, I do. Well, I'm glad that you do, because I do come armed with questions after reading your very beautiful piece in the latest issue of Intelligent Life. Matthew, ABBA, really? Let me pose the first question. Why does ABBA bring up so many emotions in different people and so much diverse emotions? I'm thinking of juvenile happiness, I'm thinking of kitsch, and I'm thinking of antipathy. It certainly does. ABBA, I think, have always been a battleground of that kind. They've been dismissed as kitsch right from the moment that they began, particularly in their native country of Sweden. They were associated, of course, with the Eurovision Song Contest, that kind of crucible of kitsch, (laughs) the, the, the kitsch to answer all kitsch. And yet, from their work emerges something that has kinship with all of those darker aspects, all of those more ruminative aspects of Scandinavian art that appear in things that are elevated, about which there is little cultural disagreement. So what is this darkness in ABBA? Most people only associate them with bell bottoms and and Scandinavian beards. Well, I think if you look over the course of their career, you can sense that that's the landscape at the beginning. But it becomes progressively darker because ABBA struggle for their initial success and they get it at the Eurovision Song Contest when they win at the Brighton Dome with their song Waterloo. But from that first moment, they're never quite allowed to enjoy it because Swedish culture, or at least the noisiest and most dominant parts of social democratic Swedish culture in the 70s, never takes to them, so that as they walk off that stage in Brighton, a Swedish journalist comes up to them and says, well, really, how can you be singing a song about a battle in which so many people died? And they enjoyed their success more beyond Sweden than within it. No one is a prophet in his home country. Absolutely. But it was a punishing kind of success. And they were tired and exhausted pretty early on. And I think somehow what you see in their work is a response to that feeling. So that by the end, the songs are incredibly gloomy, sophisticated, grown up, sad, and about the disappointments and the problems of life, not those jolly, upbeat things that we hear from them at the beginning. Now, your meditations upon ABBA were inspired by a visit to the ABBA Museum. They were, yes. I've been three times, I have to confess. I went first on my own, and it was a kind of academic experience. I think. What inspired you to go for the first time? Well, I was there doing research into something else. And I was on uh, the Dürgarten, the island, where Sweden's museums are all located. You know, the, the zoo is there, the historical museums. So I went there and I was sort of expecting to have a larky time. 
But actually, that isn't what happened. Because unlike the more lighthearted sort of pop culture museums that probably can't even be called museums, you know, your rock circus or your uh, hard rock cafe type things, the melancholia of the work is there in the objects. Mm. So that there are relics there of a success that in many ways seem sort of meaningless. It's rather poignant to see a plastic Agnetta doll marooned in the middle of this museum. It's poignant to see the, the homemade skiffle base from very early on in Bjorn's career. And there's something that's being charted in this museum that reflects the sophistication and the emotional ambivalences and ambiguities that's there in the music. At the heart of it, weirdly, is quite an important collection of, of artefacts. And describe some more of these artefacts. What was most meaningful to you? There are some things that are not... Um, exhibits of artefacts. But there is, for instance, a space that is a recreation of Agnetta's kitchen from the point at which her relationship with Bjorn was collapsing. And somehow they've managed to materialise something of the melancholy of the songs of, of that period. You refer at the end of your article to the philosophy of ABBA. Explain what you mean by that. Well, I think it would be foolish to try and extract a kind of a Weltenschirn or a theology from the work of ABBA. But it does present us with a certain view of the universe. It's a rather deterministic place. The history book on the shelf is always repeating itself, as they say in Waterloo. So there's a sort of deterministic idea of history produced by this. But there's also that idea of fate that seems very much part of the of the world of their songs. They're often Often the views of people who find themselves trapped within relationships, within certain emotional situations. There's a kind of powerlessness expressed by some of the speakers in those songs. The winner takes it all, for instance, where the speaker of that song is absolutely subject to the whims of some either some beings out there in the universe who are rolling the dice and making her follow a certain kind of fate. So I think it is music for expressing that idea that we don't often feel masters of our own lives, that they are shaped by forces that are beyond our control. To hear you talk about ABBA in such an elevated way, it's a bit surprising because most people would think of its music and the lyrics as being somewhat manufactured and artificial and simply pop. But you see it as a lot more sophisticated than that. Well, I think there is an element of manufacture and it is absolutely definitely pop. But it does have an incredible sophistication. If you think of a, of a late song by ABBA, The Day Before You Came, which is such a complicated song grammatically. It's the only pop song written in the past modal perfect. <laughs> I'm, it, the amazing thing about it is that it's a song about being ecstatically happy. But it does that by describing just how miserable the speaker was before this moment of happiness arrived, that we never are allowed to share in any detail. What we get are the mundane details of her life before it was transformed by a, a wonderful romantic relationship. We hear about her daily routine. We hear that she's reading Marilyn French and watching Dallas. There's not, I think, a single episode of Dallas that I did not see, says the song. And there's a strange awkwardness about it. It feels in a way like a kind of English language teaching exercise because it's so complicated and odd and baroque. And it, the fact that it is a detailed description of something that isn't there, I think is absolutely wonderful. Now, younger listeners would know ABBA, the renaissance of ABBA, through Mamma Mia, the, the show that is... Uh Doing well, everywhere. yes, which seems to me a rather a kind of a flattening out 
Absolutely. of the sophistications of that work. It retains its power because Mamma Mia is a show that will move people to tears. But they're not really the same kind of emotions stirred by the songs themselves. Mamma Mia seems to me to be a something of the order of a kind of a tribute act. It loses something in that translation, I think. ABBA is a musical band. Uh, it is also a cosmology, if you will, as you've put it. I will. Exactly. I will, you, Ken, I will. You absolutely will. But there's also a politics behind it, not overt, because it's about a period in which uh, Sweden was in some ways the utopia of the West. That utopia would fail in the same way that ABBA itself would go through a stage of melancholy. How do you look at ABBA today in regards to the politics of ABBA and Sweden? I think, weirdly, it would be quite possible to read the last few decades of Swedish political and cultural history through ABBA because they were a political battleground in Sweden too. The rest of the world might have been arguing about their musical merits, but actually in Sweden in the early 70s, it was a provocative thing to do, to be a band who was successful abroad and who also didn't obviously subscribe to the, the politics of the prog movement in Sweden, which is something rather particular and indigenous to Sweden. Prog to most people beyond Sweden means, you know, gatefold covers and, you know, something a bit Tolkieny that goes on for 27 hours. In Sweden, prog was a radical, political kind of folk. And it was the kind of music that certainly the Swedish media were very keen on. So ABBA had to fight for their space, fight for their airtime. And when they won the, the Eurovision Song Contest, the Swedish media were not happy about this. I mean, not least because it meant they had to stage the following year's competition. But when that happened, the coverage of a kind of concert counter-demonstration got more attention in the Swedish media than the competition itself. So ABBA were perceived to have rejected those Swedish values and to be sellouts and to be embarrassingly unpolitical. Now, you visited the museum three times. Do you think you're going to go a fourth or do you feel like you've received your fill? <laughs> well, that would depend on what they do to it. I'm sorry to say that the museum isn't as rich an experience as it was on my first two visits because if you go now, the climax of the thing, in a way, is to be presented with four scarily lifelike silicon simulacra of the four members of ABBA. You know, you get up close to them, you really think you might be somehow in the presence of those four people, but as they were in 1973 or four. And, you know, you can take your selfie with them and it's all very jolly. But the first two times I went, the climax was provided by a room that represented the cover of their final album, The Visitors. It was a wood-panelled room. There was a, a deer's head on the wall, I think. The lighting was low. And it was like entering a space designed for the consideration of the collapse of relationships. It seemed like a kind of museum of divorce in that moment. And that's a note that seems very important to me in the work of ABBA, because a lot of these songs are about accepting the failure of relationships and what you do if you find yourself in that position. And it seemed wrong to me to banish that note from the exhibition. When I think of ABBA, I th it's sort of like Marcel Proust's uh, Madeleine's Dipped into the Drink, in which the mind is stirred to consider one's youth and one's lost youth and how we age and how the relationship with us and ABBA now is some sort of comic relationship and the Mamma Mia that we take our children to uh, has changed with it as well. So indeed, by simply thinking of ABBA 
for what it means rather than what it is brings up something about ourselves. I think in a way you could do that with anything that had been such a cultural presence over such a long period of time. But there is, I think, something very special about the way that ABBA performs that role for us, partly because I think if most of us encounter their work as children, we are using their work as a kind of viewpoint into experiences that we won't have for quite some number of decades. Most pop songs are about the experiences of youth. Abba's aren't. And yet we learn about their work, we hear their work for the first time as kids. So they are letting us in on aspects of the difficulties of being in your 30s or 40s when you're 8 or 9 or 10. So for me, I think they were a, a kind of image of adulthood over the horizon, dealing with emotions and complexities that I'd absolutely no idea about. But as I got older, I felt they were coming to meet me. Thank you, Matthew. If you want to read about Matthew's trip to the ABBA Museum, then you can find his article in the January-February issue of Intelligent Life magazine, in print, on our app, or online at intelligentlifemagazine.com. Matthew will be hosting again the next episode. Matthew, what do you have lined up? Uh, Well, on the next podcast in the series, we're going to be exploring the Badlands with Simon Barnes.